Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with John Michaud, librarian at the Milburn Free Public Library and author of Last Call at Coogan's, The Life and Death of a Neighborhood Bar. Last Call at Coogan's is a biography of Coogan's Bar and Restaurant, first opened in Washington Heights, Manhattan in 1985. Through the story of a single bar, John weaves a tapestry of diverse community undergoing constant change. John, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, this was this was a, an interesting book to read. In part, I, I, I currently live in New York and I pass by hundreds of bars seemingly every single day. And, you know, it, it, it's very interesting uh, just way to, to get at at New York uh, by looking at a sort of a case study of, of a uh, of a bar and restaurant. Uh, but before getting into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so I've lived in New York uh, since 1991. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, my father was in the Foreign Service, so we lived overseas. Uh, for me, the most significant overseas stay was in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where we lived when I was a teenager. And it was there that I first started drinking in in, in bars, particularly the, the storied Irish saloons of, of Belfast, they're much looser about drinking age there. I was 15 or 16 the first time I started, went into a pub in Belfast. So, but I got a real handle on on the Irish drinking culture. And so when I came to New York in, in 1991, one of the ways I discovered the city was through its bars, particularly the Irish bars. But so I would just um, read up on the storied bars of the city, McSorley's and the Ear Inn and Puffy's Tavern and places like this. And I would just go around and, and visit them and, you know, a real neighborhood bar will give you a flavor for the neighborhood. And so I began to discover New York that way. So for this particular book, then, how did you come up with the idea, uh, specifically the idea to cover Coogan's? Well, so as a personal uh, attachment to Coogan's, uh, my wife um, grew up in the neighborhood of Washington Heights, also in Brooklyn, but most of her family live in and around Coogan's. Washington Heights is the northern second northernmost neighborhood in Manhattan. It's above Harlem. Um, and uh, her her siblings and her mother would go to Coogan's regularly. And so when I started dating her, I um, ended up going to Coogan's too. Um, so that's the personal. And then um, in 2018, Coogan's faced a um, kind of life-threatening moment when, when its landlord, New York Presbyterian Hospital, raised its rent by $20,000 a month, which was inconceivable for them to meet. And so they were uh, prepared to go out of business, but there was a huge um, 
uprising among the community, among elected leaders in the area, led by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, and that uprising saved saved the bar. The, the landlord negotiated a fair rent increase. So I went back in 2018. By this time, my wife and I had moved out to New Jersey. We would still go to Coogan's whenever we were in Washington Heights, but we weren't regulars at that time. But I thought it was an interesting story, and I had that personal angle to it. So I went in um, and wrote a story about it. I had arranged to meet the owners to interview them for the story, and um, I thought I would get 10 or 15 minutes of their time, and I ended up spending two hours with them. I really hit it off with them, and that that in, that two-hour interview was the genesis of the book because I, I was planning to write a 2,000-word article, and there was no way I was fitting all of that into a 2,000-word article. So I walked out of there, one with the idea, like, somebody should really write a book about this place because there's so much lore that would have been lost if they had closed and then a few days later, I understood that I was probably going to be the person to write that book. The story of how Coogan's came into being is, is pretty wild. Uh, you know, how how the money got there in the first place to open the bar. So I was wondering if you could describe the way uh, Joey McFadden got the money to open up Coogan's. Yes. So um, Joey McFadden was an electrician from from Inwood, which was the last fully Irish neighborhood in in Manhattan. It's the neighborhood that's north of Washington Heights. So he was an electrician. And he was paid to maintain the, the huge scoreboard that was in at the outfield at uh, Shea Stadium, where the New York Mets played. And one day in in a, on a hot summer day after after a rainstorm in the late 1970s, he slipped and fell off the scoreboard, and he badly damaged his leg. He broke his leg in several places, and he lay there at the base of the scoreboard, screaming until Tug McGraw, the pitcher Tug McGraw, who was warming up heard him and summoned help. Um, so Joey was taken to the hospital and um, a number of months later, he and his wife sued the Mets and Rheingold Beer, uh, which had provided the scoreboard for the new Mets stadium. Uh, and uh, they reached an undisclosed settlement and Joey took the money from that settlement and he started two bars. He started um, McFadden's with his brother, Steve McFadden. And that's a in its own right, a very storied New York City saloon that was on 42nd Street across the office, across from the offices of the Daily News. And that that eventually um, became very popular with athletes and actors and journalists. Um, and it ultimately became a franchise, including a, a, a an outpost at the at the new Met Stadium City Field when it opened. But the other bar that Joey opened with that money was uh, was Coogan's. So, you know, just you, you've been there yourself. If you were describing Coogan's just visually to someone, you walk, you're, you're going down the street and you see Coogan's, what do you see? And then you step in, you know, what's the environment like at this bar? Well, the, the exterior changed over the course of, of the, the life of the bar. But early on, it was a really um, unappealing exterior. It, it was a white, white uh, facade with black doors. And this was uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, Washington Heights was uh, a crime-ridden neighborhood. It was the street corners were controlled by um, crack-dealing gangs. It had the highest murder rate in the city. Violent crime was very common, and so people didn't hang out on the street. And so Coogan's, what it offered early on, was an escape from the, the street. Uh, but once you went in, it was a completely different story. It was very warm and welcoming. It was a a place full of lacquered wood. Um, there were signs 
and uh, photographs and posters all over the war, memorabilia from the neighborhood. There was a couple of seats from the um, from the polo grounds, the the old New York Giants um, baseball Giants stadium that was in Washington Heights. Um, you know, subway signs and things like that. It had three rooms, and each room had its own atmosphere. To your left, there's up a short flight of stairs. There's a a bar which was kind of a a round-edged rectangle, uh, which was a big bar area where they could have karaoke and they could have other performances. They had a lot of um, retirement parties for people in that bar. Uh, in the straight ahead of you, there's the main dining room, which was a, a big open space um, with a high ceilings. For, for many years, they would hang the track singlets from the track and field athletes who ran at the nearby armory track and field. So you had Olympic caliber athletes coming in there from the armory and there they would give their their singlets to coogans and they would hang them from the rafters of the bar um but eventually they were told they had to take those down take them down by the fire marshal but it's a big open room kind of like a uh, i think i'd call it a homespun viennese cafe it, it, it really has a, a, a welcoming feel and then off to your right is what they call the gallery room which was a private function room where they could host private parties or fundraisers and that room was decorated with um, track and field memorabilia, old Sports Illustrated covers, um, more singlets. And then they had a discus from, from an Olympic uh, discus thrower and batons from Olympic relay uh, teams and things like that there. You, you talked a little bit about in that answer, just about the neighborhood Washington Heights. Um, but, but it really is such a storied uh, neighborhood. So many neighborhoods in New York are, but Washington Heights really stands out as one of the most significant neighborhoods. Um, is there any anything else about Washington Heights that you think uh, makes it such a unique place? Well, the the most interesting thing, there's two things that really drew me to Washington Heights. One one is the the terrain from most of Lower Manhattan, the the below Harlem. It the, you have the grid is dominant, and and um, the topography of Manhattan is not really visible except in Central Park. Uh, but in Washington Heights and Inwood, you can still get a feeling for the original topography of the island. So there are hills, there are cliffs, um, there's kind of ravines and valleys, and the, the grid system kind of bends and contorts around these, these hills. So you, in some places, you have apartment buildings that are built on stilts. Um, so I, I was really fascinated with that the first time I, I went up there. But it also has a deep history. It's a, it's a neighborhood with a long history of welcoming immigrants and the, the immigrant populations of Washington Heights have changed over over the decades. Um, initially, it was home to, to Irish, uh, German, Jewish, Greek, um, Puerto Rican uh, immigrants. Um, and then uh, over time, uh, especially after the Second World War, um, that changed and there was a huge influx of Dominican immigrants from the Dominican Republic. And they became the dominant force in um, in Washington Heights right around the time when the city was going through its most difficult financial period, where it nearly faced bankruptcy and it was cutting services, and all of that contributed to the to the growth of crime and and the drug trade in Washington Heights. So, um, and then since then, of course, the the neighborhood has changed again and is gentrifying, and a lot of the Dominican presence is moving north to the Bronx and Yonkers. Um, and the, the largest group that's moving into Washington Heights in the last 10 years are, are Asians. Um, so it's a, a neighborhood in flux, like most of New York. Um, 
But that immigrant um, mix that really attracted me um, and those uh, many different ethnic groups didn't always get along. And so it reminded me a little bit of the tensions that I experienced in Northern Ireland. So I was, it, it, it resonated with me. It felt familiar. Um, people who, with historical grievances against each other, trying to figure out a way to get along. Um, so that was another thing that drew me to the story and to the neighborhood. Uh, you know, when the bar opens uh, it, in the 80s, you know, New York, New York in the 80s in particular is just uh, a, a sort of a legendary, a legendary place in time, just in terms of the crime and the violence that was taking place. Uh, how did the the owners navigate the, uh, you know, the, the kind of tougher uh, social landscape going on outside? Well, uh, they were the original owners of the bar. And even many of the folks involved later were, were all um, New York City folk. They'd grown up in New York. They, they were tough. They, they, know, they didn't fear the streets of New York, and they knew that the neighborhood was an old Irish neighborhood. So they weren't scared to open a business there, even though it was a majority um, Spanish-speaking immigrant neighborhood by then. They were also the children of immigrants, so they understood the, stu- the struggle of immigration and the difficulty of immigration, and they were sympathetic to the populations that they were hoping to serve in the neighborhood. Uh, but they were helped uh, in significant ways by by two things. One, they were attached to what was then called Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. So they had a steady flow of hospital workers, many of whom lived in the neighborhood, in, um, and they also drew um, many of the police officers, not only from the local precinct, the 34th precinct, but Many officers in the city lived in Rockland County, and they would cross the George Washington Bridge, which is very close to Coogan's, to get over the Hudson and then go north. And so many of them started stopping in and having a drink at Coogan's before going there, going home. So the presence of a large number of police officers really helped keep crime at the door. And then the they also, the owners, had pretty strict policies about what was acceptable and what wasn't in the bar. They wanted the bar to be a safe place. So they were not afraid. They had they had a, a big doorman named Big Joe, and they were not afraid to bang a few heads if people got out of line. It, you know, speak, speaking of the, uh, the the presence of, uh, let, let's say, you know, government uh, employees, local in the case of police, you, you also uh, paint, you know, paint the picture and tell, tell different stories of politicians uh, who went to Coogan's. So I was wondering if you talk about some of the political leaders that found themselves as patrons of Coogan's. Yeah, they, I mean, it was a good fortune that they they happened to open their their bar just a couple of um, blocks away from the headquarters of Denny Farrell, who was the assemblyman who rep- represented the neighborhood uh, in Albany for many, many years. He ultimately became perhaps the third most powerful politician in, in New York State. He was the head of the Manhattan Democratic Party and later head of the state Democratic Party. And he was also in charge of the Ways and Means Committee in the Assembly. So he had enormous power. He was involved in selecting judges um, for for judicial nominations. And so he would every um, Saturday host um, host visitors at his table. He had a designated table at Coogan's. And you could, if you were a constituent, you could kind of line up and wait your turn to go talk to, to, to Denny. He would also interview um, judicial candidates at his tables where everyone could see him doing it. Um, so he had a bit of a theatrical flair, but he also said, you know, I do this because I want people to know that I'm a front room politician, not a back room politician. 
he also embraced what what the owners were trying to do um and and wanted to help them he thought they were, that coogan's was good for the community and it brought people together and and he wanted to do that he was certainly not the only politician who who was there um charlie wrangle the congressman who was based in harlem uh was was a frequent visitor to coogan's and a friend to coogan's over the years and also a number of the local state senators and and the other assembly folk um and uh, as well as the city representatives also um so it became a hub for democratic politics in northern manhattan and when um you know when al gore and bill clinton were running for re-election they had a big event uh up at coogan's to raise to raise money al gore came and was present in coogan's um george pataki also visited coogan's um, so it, it became a place where uh the city's um power brokers would often stop in so in addition to politicians and, and other other power workers uh, you know what? What artists made Coogan's home uh, or frequented? You know, uh, of all varieties. Obviously, you mentioned Lin Manuel Miranda, but in addition to him, yeah. So there were a group of local uh, visual artists who who adopted Coogan's as as their as their home. The most prominent of these was a guy named Sam Garcia, who was a local artist. He was a Puerto Rican guy who uh, had served in the U.S. Army, and and he and his wife lived in the area, and. Um, he uh, started showing his work at Coogan's, and he also um, gave the bar its own identity. He became sort of the house artist there. He would paint. Um, he would do paintings for the walls. He would. He did a series of Christmas murals that they brought out during the holiday season. He did a Halloween murals that they brought out for Halloween, and he, you know, his paintings were used on the on the menu and other things. So, and then he drew a series of other artists, including two. Uh, artists um, Joe Hintersteiner and um, and another artist who had escaped the Nazis um, and and were active in the art scene up there um, and then there were many writers who who went to Coogan's most notable among them um, is Jim Dwyer who was a columnist for the New York Daily News for Newsday and then later for the New York Times um, other writers in the area would hang out there. So, and then Peter Walsh, one of the owners, uh, was also a musician and and a playwright, and he would stage these musical events. So he would have musicians come in and perform live music there, often with with him on lead vocals. So it really was a hub for for the arts. Uh, for a time, Coogan's was home to a neighborhood theater troupe that put on plays in the in the gallery room. Um, because there was no theater in Washington Heights at the time. So there really was a, a lot of artistic activity in the um, in the bar and around the bar. And they saw it as a means not only of bringing people in, but of just uh, giving people in the neighborhood something that they didn't have, because Washington Heights was deprived of a lot of those um, cultural activities in at that time in the 80s and early 90s. When you're looking at it, a place, you know, 35 years of history of a single place, it's obviously difficult to pull out and focus on individual days. You know, one, one particular day that you do give some attention to is the experience of 9-11. Uh, I was wondering if you, you could talk about what 9-11 what was like for, for Coogan's, uh, and then maybe, you know, in addition to that, other particular days of significance that you felt were necessary uh, to highlight. Funnily enough, I walked past Coogan's on 9-11. I was working in Midtown, and of course, the trains weren't running. So 
my wife and I were living up in Inwood on uh, 204th Street. And so the only way for me to get home was to walk. And I walked up Broadway along with thousands of other people. And I walked right past Coogan. So I didn't go in. I really wanted to get home. Um, but it was an odd day uh, because Coogan's is located close to the George Washington Bridge and that the bridge was shut down for a while. A number of people from the medical center um, who wanted to go home weren't able to go home. So they hung out in Coogan's uh, waiting for the bridge to reopen. Um, the uh, the dorms of the Columbia University Medical School uh, called them up that day and asked them to put together something like 200 pack lunches for their, because their, their services were all messed up. Um, there was the thought that the armory, which was next door to Coogan's, would be used as a triage area for the wounded. And so people were kind of waiting around to see if um, all these bodies would be coming up from from the ground zero. And of course, nothing, nobody came up. And so that was a that left a kind of eerie and weird feeling in the bar. And then the other thing is that it was election day. I mean, people often forget that, that there was a primary election that day. Um, and that there was a big race for mayor going on that year. And so one of the regulars at the bar was this guy, Steve Simon, who was active in local politics. And he would always go to Coogan's on election night to watch the returns come in. Um, and he said because the, the elections were suspended because of the attacks, he ended up in Coogan's much earlier than he normally would have been. But he was a bachelor and he didn't know where else to go. So he went and hung out in Coogan's. Um, you know, as I said, many of the many of the local police officers and some other officers from other areas were regulars. And so they were also familiar with some of the firemen, the local firemen. Peter Walsh had befriended uh, one particular fireman named Fred Ill, who died in 9-11. So there was a lot of tension and anxiety about these people who were regular customers of theirs and whether they had survived the day. So it was a, a very strange day. Um Coogan's at that time was notable for its karaoke, and you would often get police and fire uh, competing against each other in friendly karaoke competitions. And for many weeks after 9-11, uh, those, those police and fire uh, officials did not come back to the bar, but slowly many of them did trickle back, and each time uh, each of them was given like a hero's welcome. Um, so that that, yes, that is one memorable day at Coogan's. Um, another big day in the calendar is the first Sunday in March. They would host a 5K race. Uh, they hosted it for 20 years, and they would the race would be run through the streets of, of Washington Heights. It was called the Salsa Blues and Shamrocks 5K to kind of embrace the different ethnic traditions in the neighborhood. And so they would just take over the streets for, for the day. And that, that started as this idea of taking back the corners from from the drug dealers, at least for one day. And even after the drug dealers had had seeded the corners and crime was on on the decline in the neighborhood, they still ran the race. And it was a great way for other people from people from other parts of the city to experience Washington Heights. Um, it was a great advertisement for the neighborhood. Um, so that was another big day. St. Patrick's season in general was big at the bar. Um, and of course, there was the Washington Heights riots in in nineteen the summer of nineteen ninety two, and during those riots, the the two heavy days of rioting uh, that that were the main focus of of, of the of that civil disruption, um, Coogan's was a safe place 
for people to go. Um, so the, all of those days were, were big days in the, in the history of the bar. In 2018, Coogan's was almost forced to to shut down like like some of the other businesses. Uh, wh- why was Coogan almost a victim of the same fate? And, and what was the reason that they were saved? Well, I mean, they were uh, they were they suffered from the same fate that many people in the neighborhood suffered from, which was gentrification. The neighborhood was rapidly improving. Rents were rising steeply um, and um, their landlord, aware of this, um, raised uh, their rent to what they saw as a market rate, which was an increase of twenty thousand dollars. They had they were coming to the end of a 15 year lease. So it had been quite some time since they'd renegotiated contract. And during that time, and this is this is really significant, during that time, um, Columbia Presbyterian had merged with New York Hospital to create New York Presbyterian Hospital. And as a result of the merger, the real estate offices that controlled Coogan's and other real estate assets in the neighborhood moved from Washington Heights downtown. So the people who used to make the real estate decisions before would be regulars at Coogan's. In fact, they held their Christmas parties at Coogan's. And so they knew how important the bar was to the neighborhood. But once the real estate offices moved downtown, they lost that connection. So they just thought of it as another asset in the very large portfolio of assets that that the hospital owned. And their, their job was to, as they put it, maximize the real estate potential of those assets. And so they were doing what they thought of as their job, which was to get the most money they could for the for their real estate assets, they didn't understand that Coogan's was a special case, and so because they didn't understand that, um, they were completely unprepared for the blowback that they got when news broke that Coogan's was going to go out of business. Um, the hospital um, reversed course within three days and and understood that they had made a grievous error. Um, whatever money they would have made from a rent increase would have they would have had to spend on publicity and PR to uh, to handle the, the the anger and furor over the closing of Coogan's. So it was probably a, a prudent financial decision as well uh, to renegotiate that lease. And, and what, who who were some of the, the people that, that stepped in to help save, save Coogan's? Uh, so there's a, a regular guy named Graham uh, Serralo who um, started the petition that garnered something like 15,000 signatures in a matter of days. He was a housing activist in the neighborhood who used to drink at Coogan's, and he was completely outraged that that, um, that the hospital was going to do this. So he started this petition, put a little money behind it, but it really just took off. Um, also significant uh, were uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and his father, Luis. Luis Miranda, as people outside of New York probably don't know, is a is a significant player in New York City politics. He's been an advisor to mayors and to Senate races and to governor's races. Um, he's in charge of the Hispanic uh, Federation. He also is co-owner of the local newspaper. So he is a person of of uh, some significant influence in Washington Heights. And then um, there were also a number of local politicians who um, were involved, most notably uh, the Congressman Adriano Espaillat, who took over Charlie Rangel's seat. And uh, so there was a hastily organized meeting with the CEO of the hospital and uh, Luis Miranda and the congressman, at which uh, they were assured that the, the matter would be handled. 
And, and why why was this this still uh, you know two years later in 2020, Kugitz would finally shut its door? What why was this 2018 effort ultimately? Uh, you know, obviously it was temporarily successful, but but why why did it not last for longer than two years? Well, um, I mean the the length of the agreement for for that renegotiated lease is um, is undisclosed. So. Uh, but my understanding is that it wasn't another 15-year lease, that it was a shorter lease. And what the owners wanted to do, to, there, there are three principal owners, uh, Dave, Hunt, Peter Walsh. Both of them are were in their 70s, early 70s when this happened. And then Tess O'Connor McDade, who's in her, her 50s. Um, you know, they'd been, they'd been in the bar business a long time. They'd worked very hard. I think they wanted to, um, they were hoping to sell the business. And retire. Tess, I know, wanted to spend more time with her family. So for all three of them, they were looking ultimately to get out of the bar business um, with some money for retirement. They were not looking to continue the business for uh, for another 15 years. But COVID had other ideas. Right. And obviously, so many businesses were were victims of COVID. It's interesting, you know, that you that in many ways, you know, this is just a sort of it's a it's a snapshot of something that's happened that happened to so many uh, different establishments that, you know, could could only survive by having, uh, you know, daily patrons come in. And obviously, you know, when there's a pandemic and lockdowns, you can't you can't do something like that, like this. Uh, you know, what, when you're reflecting back on Coogan's and, and it's kind of, uh, you know, long history and story. You know, is there any any anything that you that you could that you sort of reflect on? You know, any kind of nugget of wisdom that you feel uh, readers can take away from learning about the history of Coogan's? Well, I mean, there's two things that that really come to mind. One one is that they um, they were adaptable and flexible, and so as times changed, they kept trying new things to draw people in. So they didn't they didn't um, have a a hard idea of what they wanted to do and just stick with that idea. They listened to people, they took advice, they tried things out. So, and I think that's still a fundamental thing for small business owners. Like you may have an idea of what you want to do, but when you once you open your doors and people start coming in and telling you things, you got to listen to them. And I think the Coogan's owners were exceptional at that. And they like to say yes, they love to collaborate. They they are very gregarious people. So that that was a, a help. But the other thing, just reflecting on on the book now, um since it's come out, and I, you know, I haven't been working on it for for a year now, um, is that it's. I feel that it captured a a part of New York as it was passing out of existence, and you know that whole bar culture that preceded uh, the arrival of of the internet and um, you know swipe left, swipe right as a means of meeting people. Um, that's that's largely gone now. Um, there are, of course, still bars, but they they are much less central to the social lives of of young people now. And so I feel like it re- it's a document of what nightlife was like at a neighborhood bar, like really before the digital age took hold of our of our social lives. Um, and I, I'm I'm delighted that that I managed to capture that. That's really I did not set out to do that. But in retrospect, I think that's one of the books. Um, best achievements is, is to capture that yeah and i i think that's that that's true it feels like something that doesn't quite exist anymore and i definitely 
I, I you know, I, I would like to find a bar like like that in New York. But when reading it, I was like, I don't know where I would begin to look because I mean, you know, there, there are tons of great, great bars in New York that are, you know, cool and nice and have have patrons. But it's just not it doesn't feel feel like they have the same uh, the same sort of uh, I don't know exactly what the word would be, but it's the same experience that Coogan offered. Because there, there, there really aren't neighborhoods like Washington Heights. I mean, we don't have the notion of neighborhood has changed a lot, too. So I, I think the two go hand in hand. You need to have a, a strong neighborhood to have a strong neighborhood bar. Uh, one creates the other, and it's a symbiotic relationship. So people don't look to their neighborhoods for that kind of sustenance any longer. Um, or if they do, it's in smaller, smaller pockets, I think. Well, John, uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. The book is Last Call at Coogan's, The Life and Death of a Neighborhood Bar. Uh, it's great to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking to you.